you know, ultimately a marketer is a merchandiser. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 18, and today's guest is Joel Quadracci. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at hippodirect.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, my guest is Joel Quadracci, the chairman, CEO, and president of Quad. Quad is a leading marketing solutions provider. The company leverages its strong print foundation as part of a much larger, robust, integrated marketing platform that helps marketers and content creators improve the efficiency and effectiveness of their marketing spend across offline and online media channels. Joel and I are longtime industry friends, and it's great to have him with me today. Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So we're recording uh, mid-July 2020. Uh, so before we start, just you know, how are you and, and your family doing through this pandemic? Well, you know, it's it's certainly interesting times. I think from you know personally, we're doing fine. You know, I've had I've got a, a sophomore, a soon-to-be sophomore in college, a soon-to-be senior in high school, and a soon-to-be sixth grader. They've all been home since March doing classes from home. So once the weather turned, it was fine. We live on a lake in Wisconsin, so it's beautiful. Everyone has something to do. Um, we just hope that this comes to an end so everyone can kind of get on to their normal lives. But unfortunately, I think we got more of this to come. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of like what it's it's like here on the East Coast. Um, I like to start uh, these shows with getting people's first story. I heard a friend of mine talk about on, on one of his shows uh, about first stories. So give us some perspective, uh, you know, paint the picture of Joel growing up, your family, uh, you have a bunch of siblings, uh, your parents were, were obviously very involved in your life. So just give us that perspective. Well, you know, I think growing up, I mean, I was born in 69, the company started in 71. So you know, most of my life was watching Quad become who it is today. And, you know, it was, it was an odd time because my, my parents, you know, put a second mortgage on the house with three kids, one on the way, and, you know, started Quad uh, thinking that there was a better way. Now, when you start a company, uh, most people know it just doesn't happen right away. And for many reasons, Quad shouldn't be here today, uh, but they were able to navigate things. But we always as we were growing up, we never kind of fit in, you know, with, with uh, a lot of the kids we went to school. It's because early on we were, you know, sort of this family that his father started a company, but we're at a school where, you know, all the kids inherited their money from generations before. My father was trying to be self-made. Then once he started to become successful, then we were nouveau riche. And so it was, it was a strange upbringing from that perspective. But Really interesting from the standpoint of when you really look at all the different things Quad did through history, you know, I lived it like my life and my father was, you know, kept us very involved. We were always invited to the dinner table with customers, you know, vendors, bankers. Uh, we were always at the plants, like to see my father, 
when he was in the early days, you know, working every weekend doing color okays himself with customers. You know, my siblings and I, we'd tag along and, you know, go play tag and hide and seek in the paper rolls, which, you know, of course was probably before OSHA would allow you to do it. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting when it's an entrepreneur like that and as young kids, you know, becoming, you know, adults, you, you just get to know a lot of people that help build the company almost as aunts and uncles. And, and quite frankly, there were a few aunts and uncles, but in reality, you know, the family felt much bigger. Now, your, your dad was in the printing business working for somebody else before he started his own business? Yeah, well, my, you know, my great, my, my grandfather actually got the family into printing and that was back, you know, uh, his, his father in Racine, Wisconsin was a grocer. And when the depression hit, you know, they racked up a lot of debt because you never turned your neighbors away. And as they came out of the depression, my grandfather being about 18 at the time, bought a little printing press and put it in the garage behind the grocery store. They lived upstairs and really kind of went into business to pay down the family's debt. It was more out of necessity than necessarily uh, intending to be this entrepreneur, but he grew a nice business, ended up selling it to William A. Krieger, W.A. Krieger Company, and joined them you know, effectively as their chief technologist and co-founder. And so my father actually had the same upbringing I did. He used to go to the plant with my grandfather, and so he understood printing very well just through osmosis. Um, ended up in going to law school, hated practicing law, joined the W.A. Krieger Company as corporate counsel, worked himself into management because he knew manufacturing, and ultimately left at a pretty young age to start Quad. So yeah, I mean, printing's been around for a while for us, it, sort of in your blood uh, when you have that kind of generational you know, involvement. Right. And when your dad started the business, you, you said, you know, you had... Uh... I guess there were th three children and one on the way. And yeah. so what, what role, you know, in my, my memories of your mom, and I'll talk about that in a second, um, she was involved, you know, very heavily in the business. Was she involved at the startup time as well, or was she busy yeah. raising the kids? Well, both. I mean, you know, when, when you're starting up a business, I think, especially if it's a, a family business where you're, you're putting your house on the line and your family as well, you know, you kind of, everyone does everything. And so my mother, you know, took turns being receptionist, being HR, doing all sorts of different things uh, while also raising us. And, um, you know, as the business became more successful, she could focus on us for a while. And then, you know, she went off and became publisher of uh, Milwaukee Magazine. But yeah, she was, you know, the interesting thing, though, about her and about my father is, you know, most people know my father, if you're in the industry, as this larger than life personality. Um, and most people are pretty surprised when I tell them that he's actually an introvert and that he sort of first forced himself to kind of learn how to be more of an extrovert. And um, it was my mother who really helped bring him out. So she was always very social. She was always very, you know, outspoken. And, you know, I think it was having her be the one, she'd call it the woman behind the, you know, the entrepreneur. Um, probably had a, as much to do with the company being successful as my father. Because again, you know, they kind of did a good yin-yang off of each other and, and balanced it out. 
And, and from a personal perspective for the, the listeners, you know, my involvement uh, in, in meeting and uh, getting involved with both uh, of Joel's parents, Harry and, and Betty Quadracci, um, I was you know, fortunate enough to, to meet them a number of times at, at events and, and to also be in some very uh, quaint uh, moments you know, with only you know, six or eight people or, you know, around the table up in Saratoga. Uh, and those were always, you know, very fond memories. I, I remember one time I, I went, uh, I think I've told you this, Joel, you know, we were there, my wife and I and, and you and, and your parents and you know, like the, the president of Macy's and, and yeah. somebody else. And, and I felt totally out of my league. But your dad always seemed to find a way to make me comfortable and that I did fit in. Yeah, he was, he had, he was, even though he's an uh, introvert, he also was a, just had a wonderful knack for understanding people and making everyone feel like they were the most important. And quite frankly, you know, um, a lot of Claude's philosophy throughout the whole time he was alive was, you know, he'd always try to make sure the relationship was with the people who were actually doing the work. And, you know, obviously with the size invoices print can be, you're typically also dealing with C-suite, but he really wanted to, and, and really thought his primary relationship was, you know, the people who were in charge of manufacturing, whatever title appropriate at the time, depending on the industry, and was able to sort of play off both. And, and he didn't try and entertain one group versus the other. He oftentimes intermixed it. And, and to your point, it kind of created some interesting group settings where, you know, people end up getting to know each other on a whole different level that didn't know each other before. We've had people end up working for each other, with each other. You know, he just was very good at creating that effective business relationship. And back when all of us could do more of those relationship buildings, that was very important uh, in long-term uh, business relationships too. And I continue to this day have that learned lesson that it's one thing to kind of, you know, do the socializing on the business side from more of a boondoggle for the sake of the boondoggle. But there's a whole nother side that you're doing something that makes sense and it's an experience, but you're using it to truly, truly build relationships. And, and he was a master at that. He absolutely was uh, and, and made me feel very comfortable in an environment where I could have felt very uncomfortable. So, yeah. So talk about your, uh, you know, beyond, you know, running around the, the plant uh, in the paper rolls, uh, you go to uh, Skidmore in the Saratoga area, you come out of school, and I'm guessing you jump right into quad, right? Well, I did, and that wasn't the plan. <laughs> um, you know, so I was number three of four kids, and to the point I made before, you were always included, we always were allowed to come to the plants, and he did an awful lot of the relationship building at our dinner table. And we were always included, but at a pretty young age, I started sticking around the dinner table after dinner was over to listen to the adults talk because I found, I found business fascinating and I found manufacturing fascinating. So when my siblings would go run off to play, I'd stick around. And that really led to, you know, summer jobs where I first got my license, where, you know, I, I wanted to work at quad and I really worked on the floor, driving forklifts, you know, working on presses, on Bindery lines and, and kind of to make money, quite frankly, but also, you know, you learn by doing. And so I had built up a bunch of experience. And my, my thought was I always wanted to be with the company, but I felt like I had to go prove myself somewhere else. And so I was doing a lot of interviewing to maybe do an analyst program on Wall Street to gain some credibility of seeing different industries. 
but about a month before I graduated from college, I said to my father, you know, what if I, what if I just came straight to quad? And you could see his eyes light up and a smile break out because my parents didn't believe in trying to influence us one way or the other. You know, I think they both understood that family businesses are different and you have to want to do them, especially with the work ethic that quad has. You know, the employees wouldn't just accept, you know, sort of the silver spoon boy coming in who wasn't willing to prove himself. And so I think they, they let us come to that conclusion. And I think it's important to note that, you know, Quad, my father created a wonderful training program for kids right out of school. And, and actually, you didn't necessarily have to have a college degree. He just felt you had to be 21 because he felt that that growing up period from, you know, age 18 to 21 was so important. And so... The trainee program was run like a graduate program for two to three years. You moved throughout the company. You were free labor to everybody, so they wanted to train you. And uh, you end up knowing everybody, and you end up really creating this network of knowledge because you learn by doing. And so as I kind of did the positives and negatives, I just felt like I sort of would have missed out on a lot of learning at Quad by going somewhere else for a couple years which turned out to be fortuitous because, you know, we lost my father at a pretty young age at age 66. And I got thrown in, you know, to some things ahead of when I think I wanted to with a young family. But I think that call I made at the end of my senior year to join the company and be a trainee was, was really turned out to be retrospectively very important. Right. It's funny how things like that work out. Yeah. And and I, I was I was giggling to myself while you said the silver spoon because and, and also I've I've told you this story. You and I first met, I, I think it's roughly nineteen ninety-six. I was still working at Hanover Direct and um I was at the company store catalog and we were working with Quad and um, you came in uh, to my office and they introduced you as, and I don't remember if you were a VP of sales or just, you know, our sales guy at the time. I was time. just a sales guy then. Yeah. And, and I remember thinking, and I didn't know Quad from any of the other, you know, players that were out there. And, they, you know, this is Joel Quadracci, you know, his son's, his father started the business. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, I've got this silver spoon guy. He's going to be my sales guy. I think you, I think you said that to me too. that would sound like me and i remember very vividly you were not at all like that you were a very down-to-earth guy well thank you you know i think you've stayed that way i know you've stayed that way all this time and and i'm certainly uh sure that you know it's 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 something that's innate in you but you know your your mother and father probably um you know were very impactful on that well and so was the culture of quad because you know for those who don't know us i mean my father in the early 90s, well, first of all, when, when he first started the company, it became an employee-owned uh, and family-owned company, which in the early 70s was unheard of to give the employees ownership. But he also gave things like uniforms as a benefit, so you don't get your own clothes dirty. And in the early 90s, decided that everyone's going to wear a uniform because he didn't like the distinction that was being drawn between management and non-management because he just always felt that everyone's in it for the same reason if you're you know an employee-owned company and that your title is just a description of what you do within that sort of collective and you know ultimately you'll get better decisions if everybody gets to be heard so it was very much a utilitarian culture that i grew up around where you know my father would never introduce himself like i remember one of the proudest moments i had and this says it all 
we were on a plane, my father and I, and sitting in first class because it was an international trip and I was young. He took me along. And there was this guy sitting next to us in a three-piece suit, very distinguished looking, talking about how he's the CEO of this big company and all that. And after he went on and on, he asked my father, and you know, I'm so proud of my father. All my father would tell him was, well, I'm a printer. Right. He didn't say I'm the CEO of a printing company. He said, I'm a printer. And I'm like nudging him. I'm like, come on, tell him how cool you are. <laughs> and uh, he refused to do it because that's not the way he was. And that's not the way Quad was. You know, my father always thought the titles were just for people outside to, to know, you know, who's the supervisor? Who do I talk to to get a decision internally? You know, it was a very different deal. And that, that you know, again, because I grew up around that environment, it wasn't just my parents. It was the culture he created and the people within the company that really influenced, I guess, me not losing my grounding. Right. And as, as I start to set up here, you know, the way printing companies have changed and, and evolved over time, um, you know, the phrase ink on paper was something that, you know, he talked about, you talk about, your, your company talks about. What, what, what's that really mean to you, ink on paper? A, a number of things, but, but I think you know, it literally is ink on paper. That's what we do. And um, generalizing that way, it tells you what our expertise is. We know how to take, you know, this little thin piece of fiber that's made from all different trees that are not made the same. And you're running them at, you know, 30, 40 miles an hour, putting tension on it, controlling it within microns. So that you can put these little tiny dots of ink on top of each other to create the illusion of all the different colors that make up four color print. And, and so, you know, you think about what, what's your expertise. We're really good at putting ink on some kind of substrate. We're really good at converting that fiber into something like a catalog, a magazine, or some really creative, you know, bind-ins or direct mail pieces. And even today we've expanded it into packaging, into all sorts of things in-store signage to now permanent displays. So we never want to kind of lose our roots because ink on paper, that type of uh, um, sort of technology I just walked through, you know, means that you have to be really good at process. You have to be really good at taking advantage of technology as it changes. You have to become really good at innovating that technology and many times creating it. If you're going to be able to be competitive, if you're able to move the medium forward, and if you're able to continue to make your business sustainable. And so when you say ink on paper, it's kind of an umbrella statement for a whole lot of skill sets and a whole lot of reasons we've done things that we've done. You know, we happen to be one of the biggest ink manufacturers in the country, if not the world, with really one client, and that's Quad. And the reason for that was way back when Quad was maybe number 65 or 70 on the list of printers, we had developed a lot of information technology. This is early 80s. I mean, think about this. Every employee at Quad had an email account in 1982. No one knew what email was back then, and we all communicated that way. We, 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 because of that, we understood the power of information, and so we created this tool set to be able to measure everything that happened on press. And once you pulled that data, you found that impurities in the ink, you know, getting those little droplets of ink onto the paper were causing a huge amount of press downtime because it was causing the, the web of paper that we're trying to drive at 30 miles an hour to break. 
And so we went to the ink companies as number 60 or 70 and said, we want to change the spec. We want better ink. And they said, quad who? No one else is asking for that. The big guys aren't asking for it. No. And so my father said, well, how hard can it be? It's like a cake shop, which is buy the components and let's mix it and get a better quality. And from that point forward, the, what we've been able to do by controlling that input has just been amazing over many, many years. And that's just a great example of what I mean by, you know, when you say ink on paper, you're covering a whole lot of things underneath that that explain not just what you do, but how you do it. And that's a perfect example of, you know, if I think back to the culture of when I first learned, you know, about quad, you know, what seemed, what the marketplace and what you internally marketed as something that gave you a competitive advantage was your ability to innovate, your ability to, you know, come up with new uh, machinery, the way to take out costs. Uh, well, I don't know process. if you remember this. I was trying to sell you at the company store on doing personalization because we, started doing a lot of inkjet personalization beyond just the address block. Yep. And so I kind of grew up in my professional career, joining Quad officially in 1991 in that trainee program and then going into sales, right at the advent of where Quad innovated a whole lot of capability in uh, inkjetting, where even the databases you all had as marketers, you know, were really hard to get at the data at the time, if you remember. But I, I remember specifically trying to sell you on Inkjet, and I think we did play with it. We, we did. As a matter of fact, I, I remember vividly what we did. We, on a front cover, we had a gift box, and there was a hang tag out of the gift box. Yeah, And we, we had printed, um, you know, I think the words to and from, yeah. and maybe it was only one, one field, but we used the initials of the recipient of the catalog as the, you know, the to area of the thing of the yeah. hang tag and and that was the first time we had ever done anything other than the, on the back of a book it was incredible and, and then i think we started driving you know some offers and things like that specific to the customer which you know i'm sure you're going to want to get to the, some of the, where we are today yep. but but people forget that a lot of us printers whether it's in direct mail or catalog or what have you have been doing data-driven marketing technology for a long time. And so when people talk about, you know, when, when the advent of personalization became all the buzz in the last decade, and even more recently, um, it's like, yeah, well, <laughs> it works. Like I have, you know, 25 years of knowledge to tell you how it works. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. And so you mentioned before, you know, about being number 65 or 70 in, in yeah. printers, um, obviously over the, the last 20 years, uh, the universe of printers um, has uh, shrunken domestically. And how, how do you think that, you know, the, the capabilities that you had developed um, have allowed you to survive, you know, all these other uh, businesses going away? Well, you know, the consolidation was inevitable. You know, these are capital intensive businesses and you know, there was a lot of growth, but, you know, as soon as, you know, the pie stopped growing like it did and, you know, other mediums came in and we had some of the disruption, you know, it's, it's hard to, that's a hard thing to deal with if you're just 
relying on on growth to, to run a good business. Remember, growth hides all sins. Um, and my father used to say, when the tide goes out, you find out who's wearing a bathing suit. And, and it's kind of the story of the printing industry is you go through a consolidation phase, which probably you know was 20 years, 30 years in lifespan, where you went from you know a whole bunch down to just a handful. But a lot of them then turned into you know financial plays with uh, Wall Street sort of investments that really um, sort of drove the industry to stop investing in the platform. And again, this is a capital intensive platform where the technology was still changing pretty rapidly. And so we saw people investing only incrementally on new plants or new equipment, but not sort of going backwards. And what my father stumbled into in the 80s was when one of the major workhorses of the industry was called an M1000A printing press. It printed 32 pages. A new one came out called the B press, M1000B. And it was at least 30% more productive with your labor dollars. And because he only had like a couple presses, he basically re-equipped himself completely because the productivity paid for it. He didn't have this big installed base that was hanging around his neck of old technology. And so that's when he discovered that, boy, with fast changing technology and a capital intensive business, if we can start now and continue to invest forward and backward as a technology changes, um, ultimately we'll be the low cost producer. And so when you know, the industry started having a shorter term view, of you know take our we want you to take your cash flow and pay it out as a dividend or you know let's go acquire someone else you saw people you saw companies stop investing in the core platform and quad never did to this day we, we've been you know at least two times the capex as a percent of sales as any printing company out there for a long long time and so that as things as the pie got smaller and as things got tougher you know, what really kept us going was the fact we had the most modern platform. And, and even though it's capital intensive, labor is still the biggest cost. And so if you're getting 30, 40, 50% more out of that labor dollar because of the equipment that you invested in and the efficiency, people can sharpshoot at you all day long pricing wise, but they still have to make it work. And, it, you know, the, my father always used to say that the low cost producer will always win in the long term. And that's probably the single biggest concept that Quad adopted early on and stuck to all these years that has allowed us to kind of continue to navigate as others fell by the wayside. And if we if we move you know forward in the timeline, so your your dad passed away as you mentioned at an early age, two thousand two. Yeah, uh, it wasn't until two thousand and six, I believe, that you were appointed as C- CEO and, and president. So there was a a, a period in there. Yeah. How was the company managed? Just quickly during that time frame. Well, my uncle, who was about 11, 12 years younger than my father, joined him from the beginning. Was a technologist. Um, he was sort of the designated heir in case something happened to my father because I was too young. You know, so he kicked in and. You know, I was in my mid-30s with two young kids, and he played a perfect role of kind of stabilizing because when the original entrepreneur goes away, especially someone who, you know, is so flamboyant and outspoken, people started saying, well, you know, Quad is Harry and Harry is Quad. Without Harry, what happens? And what people discovered was 
these companies become more than one person. If you're successful, it means you've probably developed a good team. It means you've probably got a great strong culture that will continue long after the founder, you know, dies. And that happened to be the case. And so after a couple of years of that, you know, I, I was stepped up to chief operating officer. So running most of the company. And then, you know, the board asked me if I would go the rest of the way. And so I did. And so 2006 at a pretty young age, you know, suddenly I'm, find myself running a $2 billion company. And it was a, it was a scary time, I have to tell you. I'm sure it was. I, I remember, you know, talking to you uh, numerous times uh, during that transition. And, and obviously, you know, just as a frame of reference for folks, so, uh, and we'll talk about this in a bit, you're a public company uh, now, uh, you do close to $4 billion a year. So, you know, during that period of time, uh, since you became president and CEO, the, the company has doubled in, in size. So, you know, kudos to you and the, and the team of people that, you know, work with you. But you've seen a lot and the industry has changed dramatically from the time that uh, yeah. you ascended to that role. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, I'm more interested in the, in the more recent quad. You've made a bunch of acquisitions over time, not just of printing related businesses, but, you know, kind of your vision of what I think you guys call quad 3.0. Sure. And just, I'll do real quick on sort of the going public part and why. Um, and that is, you know, after the 2008 crisis, we sort of looked at the world and you know the industry had way too much capacity and, and a lot of weak capacity and a lot of outdated stuff. We knew we had the best platform and we're the last stuff that should disappear. So we felt that if we were to survive, we had to be the consolidator, otherwise we'd be consolidated. And so we were a distant number three. Um, the number two world color didn't make it through. They went through bankruptcy. We were owned by distressed tech guys who didn't want to own it and asked us to buy it. And so we did, and we went public primarily to be able to do it. And we're still a controlled public company, though. So the family, we knew that even though we'd be diluted down, we could still be in control of our destiny because we have over 80% of the vote. That's a key point because, you know, from 2008 on, you know, again, a lot of impatience around companies or industries like this where there's good free cash flow, but people want you to do it take the free cash flow and do something else with it than invest in it. So then fast forward, you know, 3.0 has been happening a while. And I, you know, 1.0 was the founding of the company. 2.0 was consolidating the industry, but we started adding on capabilities. And 3.0 is really just, you know, I, I had to use that terminology because I used to talk about chapters. But when I got into 3.0, we were really acting more like an agency of sorts the people in the plants who were running printing presses said, well, I guess we're not going to focus on printing anymore. And it's like, no, it's like we're, we're doing it all. And, and it's really, that's why we adopted the software terminology because it just means we're adding a whole new capability. And I'd say this has been happening for a long time. And when we started going upstream in services back when my father was here, uh, where we started doing photography because we knew that process wise and efficiency wise, it would be better for our customers we started doing on-site, you know, management of creative services and production. But what I saw, you know, maybe six, seven years ago was this changing dynamic in marketing again, where, you know, you went through this phase of everything to digital as fast as you can, no matter what, at the expense of legacy uh, media channels. And what we started to understand was that 
and I've always believed this, it's an all of the above world. Human nature is not to do one technology versus the other. They use it all. But I did know that a pendulum swing would have to kind of come back where people are saying, okay, online is really great. We've done a lot with it. Look at the data, but now we have to layer in the other stuff. So being from the other stuff, we saw the opportunity to go much bigger and faster at advising companies on how better to market, regardless of whether it was in print or in digital. I've got the hard part done. The hard part is owning these big presses and doing inkjetting and getting stuff into the, into the customer's uh, hands, the consumer's hands. Um, but on the marketing side, with the advent of the big agency holding companies, there's not a lot of actual execution that goes on. There's, yes, there's lots of ideas, there's lots of cool stuff, but the chain was very fragmented. I always say that, you know, I, I use an example of a big retailer that does a lot of print, that for a back to school campaign every year, they use 15 to 20 different agencies to do that, to manage everything from online to offline. Those 20 different agencies could be hold, owned by the same holding company, but they aren't measured together. And therefore, people are probably spending too much in the wrong places and not enough in the right places. And people's marketing departments were very fragmented too, kind of following those silos. Um, with what, uh, you know, how challenging marketing is today, you know, as many places as we can all advertise, the effectiveness hasn't always gone up. It's a little bit gone down if you look at it broadly. And so we just felt that, you know, the next phase was to link the two and that we'd be in a great position to do it because it's much easier for me to go up into the other media channels and learn how to help people pick where to go and how to execute on the content than it is for those people to come down into the actual execution of content and product. So I'm sorry it's a little long-winded, but it's no. an important story. Yeah, absolutely. So then as, as you think about, you know, what you bring to market, you know, you, you obviously are not thinking yourselves as printers only, you are almost thinking your my words, but you're almost thinking of yourself as a provider of uh, the ability for a, a retailer to to market to spend marketing dollars. Some of it may be paper, some of it may be digital, you want to bring the whole thing together under one roof. Think of it this way, because it's kind of uh... As far as I could tell, it's kind of a new new type of <laughs> new type of space. In that, we're remember when I we talked about ink on paper. It's as much about the what the how we do things. And I talked about process. You know, we're a lean enterprise company. We know how to process map any process out there, and any process out there can be improved if you do it scientifically. And so we had that big strength. And where we really started to accelerate into 3.0 is when we were dealing with existing clients. And I'll use Cabela's as an example. They had their own, we did a lot of printing for them, no doubt. But they had their own in-house agencies, their own people, 150 people that did all the content creation from video to commercials to you know, pages for a catalog. And they were looking for cost savings. And we said, well, let us come in with our process mapping people and let's look at how do you come up with content. Let's start with merchandisers and marketers and let's come up with then what happens from there and how do you deploy. And from the process mapping, immediately we knew that day one we could probably save them 30% out of cost just by the waste in the system. 
And so when you think about marketing, you want it to be both efficient and effective. Well, that's the efficient side. That's where you're almost coming in as like a Deloitte or a McKinsey and showing someone how to streamline that. They said we're, that that was pretty amazing, but I think they're almost more impressed with the 40% of time savings in creating that content and executing on it that came out of it. And so you sort of fast forward to now efficacy of content deployment. So efficiency and effectiveness. Effectiveness side says, how do we make them all work in concert with each other in a much faster basis? Because now we also want to use the data about Joel, the consumer, to impact what he does, no matter how he interacts with you. So if I'm cutting 40% of the time to create content, that's important because, you know, I use the example of buying my daughter a really cool camera online. And I just, it was a total digital story. So I bought the camera, and for three weeks, an image of the camera followed me around the internet trying to get me to buy it again. But if they actually could have iterated the data about what I did with the content faster, it would have been putting images of the most often ordered accessories for that specific camera in front of me right away. By the way, no matter where I interact, if I didn't respond online right away, send me a direct mail piece that just shows me what's for that camera. But that doesn't happen. And so that's why I say it's kind of a different sort of space. We're coming at it. And, and by the way, when I say we're coming at it from McKinsey or Deloitte, our output is not a fancy, expensive PowerPoint of telling you what to do. Our output is now we can show you how to execute it and we can actually do it for you. And I'll have to tell you that when, when it comes to the content space, we've seen consultant after consultant tell our customers how to do it better, only to have us come in and correct it because they don't come from execution in content. We do. That's our bread and butter. And so it gives us the most credibility of actually not only showing you how you can save cost and time, but then we can actually do it for you. And then that leads us to, okay, now I trust you that way, Joel. Tell us where we should spend it and, and what data we should look at and how, what, how can we use more data to drive bigger response rates no matter where we are which led to us investing in some of the assets we didn't have yet, like Rise Interactive in Chicago, um, or Ivy, which does a lot of uh, in-house sort of management of people's content, to Periscope, which is really the front end of creative to be you know, an AOR for people should they want it. But do it in a way with all these different opportunities in a connected, integrated fashion that makes them more effective. I'm not being measured. We probably buy about $800 million worth of media on behalf of customers today. And that will go well over a billion, I'm sure, in the near future. But our measurement isn't trying to make it off of the buy. Our measurement is how do we get you to do it efficiently? In many cases, I want you to buy less media if we can make it more effective. And that's kind of a flip from where the agency world came from, where you know it's about you know controlling a lot of the media spend and making money on you know, that part. And do you find that there's enough people in the space that, you know, that your clients that are understanding? I mean, I, I guess I, I feel like, you know, as I talk to customers, potential clients, and I talk to other people in the industry, people feel like they know that they need to change, but yeah. we're all, you know, creatures of, of habit. And it's very difficult to get people to make change. Well, and that's very true. And, and again, it, it, you know, I, the first time I did a 3.0 thing was with one of my current board members, uh, Steve Fuller, who is the CMO of L.O. Bean. 
you know, we had done business with them for years. In fact, we were running the photo studio for them. We just celebrated 10 years of doing that up in uh, Maine. And he came to me and said, look, I think that we're inefficient in how we take content from our creative all the way through to execution online or, or in print. Do you know a consultant who can help us fix that? And I said, yeah, me. <laughs> so we went in and we helped sort of streamline the execution of create the, the image once instead of multiple times for different media and, and launch it out appropriately. So I'd say that there's always that sort of skepticism at first, especially talking to a printer about this stuff, but I'd say it's changed dramatically over the past three years and I don't have to do much convincing anymore because we have enough case studies of significant brands to show people what we're able to do. And um, so now today we're, you know, doing major initiatives with the Lowe's of this world, you know, the Walmarts, the, the Amazons. It's uh, happened pretty quickly. I'd say, Mark, to your point, you know, I do think that people, businesses, not marketers, I'm saying any business that's been around, tends to look at ability to change incrementally. So we're incrementally managing. Like, okay, Joel, I'll let you maybe do my photography work. But now comes COVID. And a lot of marketers have sent their people home to work from home or have shut down completely. Some of the retailers, as you know, had to close their doors completely for a while and they're all opening up now. So now there's this opportunity of all the things I wish I could have done or think I should get to someday is the opportunity because everyone's, you've got them at home. Now, I think more people I talk to are asking not about um, when do I come back and what should be the pacing. It's more along the lines of what shouldn't we bring back? And if that means there's a bunch of things to think differently where you don't have to carry the cost yourself, like, you know, someone like a quad managing the content for you, even if that means people being in your four walls, that's one less thing you have to deal with. Because when you pull, when when you're managing your own stuff that way, you know, ultimately a marketer is a merchandiser, right? You want to focus on marketing strategy and on merchandising. A lot of this other stuff can be done more efficiently by other people because we're in a huge worldwide network, Quad is, where we can low level that cost different than you can. And so I think that you're going to see a lot of people do a little bit more dramatic rethinking because of the shutdown that COVID started. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, in other conversations, you know, we've talked about you know businesses that you know had this roadmap, they couldn't get things done, they weren't sure if they wanted to make the change that they you know they they thought about making. A perfect example is you know having customer service agents all coming into a, a common facility. Um, they had thought about having work from home agents, but they couldn't quite pull it off. Now they've been forced to pull it off. You know, talk to so many people that you know will not have customer service people coming back into a a common environment. They'll continue to have them, you know, work from home. Right. You know, it's and and I think there's other uh, things just like that. Let's talk a little bit about, if we could, you know, your family yourself have been very philanthropic over the years. Maybe talk just briefly about some of the things that are near and dear to uh, your heart, Joel. Well, in some of its, you know, legacy where, you know, we've been supporter of the arts in Milwaukee because of the product we print. So we have a big limited edition collection of, you know, artist prints that go throughout our plants because every time my parents built a new plant, they needed something to go on the walls. So we'd buy these unknown artists and put them up there. They supported the Calatrava edition at the Milwaukee Art Museum. They were big believers in surrounding people with art. And that's why 
our plants are surrounded with it because my mother was a Montessori school teacher once upon a time and felt that, you know, you got to kind of look at things differently from an experiential standpoint to learn things on a deeper level. And so today I'm the president of the Milwaukee Art Museum Board doing a couple years stint. But I'm also a big believer in trying to impact the inner city challenge. I mean, in Wisconsin, Milwaukee specifically, it's one of the most segregated cities in the country. And it's been hard to try and get people who need jobs to where they can get them because we don't have the right transportation to help them out of you know, the inner city. And so we've done things um, with that from a running Rebels is a organization here we work with. But I'd say that one of the underlying, main underlying passions that Quad has had is wherever we have a plant, we want to be a part of that community. And so we've invested in playgrounds, we've invested in libraries, certainly invested in, you know, fire departments and things like that, that help make a community go. You know, when we first left the state with a plant in Saratoga that you were at, my father made the statement then that he didn't want to be a Wisconsin company doing business in Saratoga. He wanted to be a Saratoga company doing business in Saratoga because the two have two different statements. One says, I'm going to use the community for its resources. The other says, I'm going to be a part of that community and invest in it. And so I'd say as, as a company, as a family, you know, we, we look at a lot of different things and there's certainly a lot of demand for help out there, but it's a pretty broad range, a range of things that we've been philanthropic with um, that really impact, you know, what it is to be a community. Well, thank you for, uh, for that. And, and thanks for the time and the good insight on, on how your industry and how your own company has evolved over time been fun watching the the change of you personally and and of the company uh, as well all these years and and I appreciate your friendship during this time so best of luck to you and the family and uh, again thanks for doing this for me it was my pleasure thank you Mark that's it today's game ball goes to Joel Quadracci for coming on the marketing playbook to me today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows number one we learned about the power of relationships Whether you are a provider of services or the customer, building a strong working relationship takes effort, but it's truly important. I always appreciated how Harry, the CEO of Quad, spent time getting to know me, although in the end, the decision of whether to ultimately work with Quad would be made at levels way above me. Number two, growth hides all sins. When times are good and our businesses are growing, we sometimes lose sight of the processes we are using and whether or not they are really the best ones for the business. It's as important to know why your business is performing well as much as it is to know why it's not. Any process can be mapped and enhanced if it's done scientifically. And number three, what's your core competency, whether it be your own personal skills or those of your company? If you know this, you can leverage those competencies to broaden and innovate your capabilities. Ink on paper was the building block for Quad that has allowed them to broaden their scope of services from printing to now being a provider of demand-driving ideas. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.